Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. And it's in your bulletin. It's also up here. You can follow along with me as I read it aloud. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than uh, a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together briefly before we look at this word. God, we thank you that you have brought us here. And, uh, you know, especially today on a day where it's uh, kind of a dreary day and uh, there's so much going around us. And, you know, for some of us, it was really difficult to get here. Um, we, We do thank you that we are able to gather. And as we see later on in the book of Hebrews, it's so important to meet together. Uh, that we might encourage one another. And so help us to be encouraged today uh, as we think about the things of you, as we think about what Jesus has done, as we think about who he is, and help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus during this time. And if something is uh, hindering us from doing so, uh, we ask God for your help, for the power of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to see Jesus more clearly, and to see Jesus um, from the deepest recesses of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are going through a sermon series through the book of Hebrews, and what we're doing is we're calling this series, Jesus is Better. Uh, If you are not a believer, uh, welcome. But one of the things I think that you will have to be convinced of, even more than the fact that Christianity is true or could be true, I think you're going to have to be convinced of the fact that Jesus is actually worth following, that he's actually better than uh, all Uh, these other things that you might want to devote your life to. If you are a believer, one of the things you are going to have to be convinced of if you want to persevere in the faith and continue to follow Jesus and do the things that he might be calling you to do is you have to be convicted that Jesus is ultimately better. And if you care about the faith of the next generations, the younger generations, the people next door, all the kids that are growing up, the uh, what you call the, uh, I think they're called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, Uh, gradually younger generations are falling away from the faith. If you want them to follow Jesus, one of the things that they they are going to have to be convinced of is Jesus is better. 
And what is tricky about that is you can easily say the words and you can say, I, I, I believe Jesus is better, but ultimately at the end of the day, your lives and the way you live your lives and the way you continue to persevere in your faith is going to determine whether you actually believe Jesus is better. Today, we're going to talk about how Jesus is fundamentally a better king. And in order to appreciate that Jesus is a better king, I think we have to first start with a question and ask why we need any kind of king in the first place. Obviously, we do not live in a monarchy. We are not used to having a king. Uh, but rather than getting caught up in this notion or this title of a king, let's think for a moment about what the function of a king is. Uh, a king is somebody who rules over a people. A king is responsible for the people. A king is responsible to serve the people to maintain righteousness and justice and peace in the land. I think technically uh, we live in what's called a republic. I think that's what we call it. And therefore what we do is we elect people to represent us to certain branches of government and the totality of those branches on uh, different levels of municipalities are what rules over us. And it is a system that's supposed to limit uh, power being consolidated into one individual in order to limit corruption, but we are still being ruled by some kind of government, right? Without any kind of rule over people, do you know what happens to society? A society devolves into anarchy, and anarchy is probably the worst thing that can happen to a society. Under anarchy, there is no justice for anybody, there is no peace for anybody, there is no prosperity for anybody. And if you want an example of this, all you have to do is, when you open your Bibles, if you've ever read the book of Judges, it covers a period of time where there are these cycles of chaos and anarchy as people did what was right in their own eyes. And then God would send these judges, and these judges would curb that period of chaos for a season, and then the people would cycle again into sin and into another season of chaos. And the way the book of Judges ends is, it says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And there is this direct association with not having a king in Israel and how everybody did what was right in their own eyes with anarchy. And it's a great setup for 1 Samuel where the first king would be anointed, King Saul. And the reason why the first king is anointed is because the people, they're clamoring for a king. They're saying, we need a king. They've experienced life where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And they've come to the conclusion that is not a good life for anybody. A king comes to bring order out of chaos. Now, the difference between a good king and an evil king is that a good king is going to use their power to take care of the kingdom, but an evil king is going to exploit the kingdom to take care of himself. You know, yesterday I just saw uh, The Lion King, the musical. Uh, we took my oldest daughter out for a little birthday gift, and... I think The Lion King as a story, it perfectly illustrates that dynamic um, really well. Mufasa is a good king, and his interests are with, um, I guess, the wilderness or the kingdom that he oversees. He, and therefore, because he is a good king, uh, the kingdom flourishes. Everybody has something to eat. Scar is the evil king, and his interest is to serve himself and to exploit the people in the kingdom. And what ends up happening under his rule is know people end up starving there's not enough to eat and this beautiful kingdom becomes bare you see a good righteous king is ultimately good for everybody when God created man in his own image you know what man's calling was at the beginning of creation man was supposed to be a king 
God didn't assign this task to the lion. God didn't assign this task to the birds in the air or anybody else in creation, but this was humanity's calling. Uh, if you read Genesis 1, God creates man in order to have dominion over creation. After he creates male and female in his own image, he says to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the uh, heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That language, subdue it, have dominion. That's language of rule, friends. That's why or that's the way the world was created. That's the way things were meant to be. God put humanity in a position of rule to care for creation and care, and creation was meant to submit to the rule of man as king. You know, all this rain, all this traffic, right? We're not supposed to have that. <laughs> creation, something happened in Genesis 3. Things went off course. Adam disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, and he lost his ability to rule. Remember that uh, famous scene in the movie Titanic and Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, his character is at the edge of the boat. He spreads his arms and uh, he famously he goes, I'm the king of the world, right? And ironically, only a few hours later, the world in the form of an iceberg uh, would become king over him, take his life. So he's not really the king of the world because otherwise he would have been able to command the seas and command the iceberg, right? I think that illustrates what man is supposed to be and what man was meant to be as God intended it, but what man could not be because of sin and disobedience. Now, the reason I mentioned uh, this whole big backdrop about a king is because, you know, the author of Hebrews here, he is quoting from Psalm 8 in verses 5 to 8. And Psalm 8, the background of Psalm 8 is actually Genesis 1. And it's basically saying this. It's saying that Jesus is a better king than Adam was because Jesus is the one who is able to achieve the very dominion that Adam originally lost. Jesus is the one who is able to command the wind and the seas in the midst of a dangerous storm. And that's what this entire chapter is meant to show us. Whereas Adam failed to be the king that God created him to be, Jesus is the better king who became the king of kings that this world ultimately needs. And what kind of king is Jesus? He's at least according to this passage, I think we see three things. First, he's a humble king. Second, he's a brotherly king. And third, he is the priestly king. So let's look at those three characteristics of Jesus. First, Jesus is a humble king. Uh, verse 9, uh, referring to Psalm 8, says this, But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Uh, pretty much all the commentaries say that this is actually talking about Jesus' great act of humiliation in his incarnation when he took on human form. And up until now, the author of Hebrews, if you remember from last week, he's really been emphasizing the loftiness of Christ, that Jesus is the pre-existent Christ and his divinity is uh, way up here, right? Now in chapter 2, what he's doing is he's saying the one who is way up here, the pre-existent Christ whose uh, very word uh, holds together all of creation, this one came down and took on the form of a human. But here, I think the, uh, the author is bringing it down and showing us that even though Jesus was so supreme, he was made lower than the angels for a little while. Why? So that he can experience the ordinary life experiences that you and I experience. Uh, what are some of these ordinary life experiences? Well, 
All people experience temptation. All people experience what it's like to be weak. All people experience suffering. All people are going to experience death at some point. You see, what makes the act of the incarnation so astounding is that those experiences, although it may be ordinary for you and I, it would not have been ordinary for the lofty one, for Jesus Christ in his glory prior to his incarnation. But what he does is he says, for a little while, I will be made lower than the angels. I will come down in human form. I will experience that which you experience. I will experience the temptation. I will experience the weakness. I will experience the suffering. And I will experience the death. Without Jesus' experiences of suffering and death, you know what? There is no salvation for anyone. That's what verse 10 is saying. Jesus is called the founder of their salvation. And, uh, you know, the Greek word for founder is a, is a hard word to translate. I don't think nobody actually really knows firmly what that word means, but uh, you can translate it as champion or author, leader, or pioneer. Uh, my personal choice, I would say this word probably is better translated as pioneer. Uh, because what does a pioneer do? A pioneer creates the way, opens a path so that others can follow. Jesus became like us so that he might be a pioneer of salvation, so that he might make a way or a path for us to be sons of glory, to follow him in glory. Now, if you're thrown off by maybe the masculine use to convey what we will become uh, when he says we all become sons of glory, he's not making commentary about gender, but he's making a commentary on status. Because in the ancient world, sons are given a certain level of status in the family and were the recipients of the father's inheritance. And so when the Bible says that we are given sonship, uh, it's not a gender thing. Male or female, whether you are male or female, you become sons because you share in the status of who Jesus is as son to the father. You receive a glorious inheritance as a son, and Jesus brings you to glory as a son. That's why Jesus is not only our king, but we can also say he's a brother. He's a brotherly king, right? Uh, he actually calls us his brothers, and verse 11 goes so far as to say this, that he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He's not ashamed. Now, that's really astonishing if you think about it because the pre-existent, glorious, divine Christ in humility condescended to our level, was made lower than the angels in his incarnation to the point where he would call us brothers. Language of brother is language of family. In honor-shame cultures, family is what confers your status, whereas in you know, Western culture, usually your personal achievement or your resume or something like that confers status but many of you also come from Asian culture, so you understand that in an honor-shame culture, family is oftentimes what conveys your status. You know, if, you are, uh, if your parents were immigrants and, and came to the States and they made all these sacrifices uh, so that you might become a success, um, you know, part of your motivation to become successful is probably not just for your life, but probably to bring greater honor to your parents and to the sacrifices and the choices that they made right? Conversely, if you do something that is really uh, brings a lot of shame to your family, you know, a family might respond in various ways. They may never talk about you. They may never talk about uh, the event that brought shame upon the family. Uh, and at an extreme level, they might just kind of cut you out of the family, right? If you bring that much shame to the family. You see, when Jesus calls his brothers, what it means is this. He sees us as family, 
And what's even more astonishing is that verse 11 makes it a point to say he is not ashamed to see us as family. He's not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed to call his brothers. The glorious, holy, powerful one is not ashamed to call sinful, unholy, disobedient, rebellious people like us his brothers. That, that's amazing, friends. I'm quoting a lot of movies today. I don't know why. Uh, there's this old movie uh, starring Tom Cruise called The Firm based on a John Grisham novel. Uh, if you've seen it, uh, Tom Cruise's character, his name is Mitch McDeer. And he is this exceptionally bright person who graduates Harvard Law School at the top of his class. What makes him even more impressive is he's kind of a self-made man. He comes from a place of poverty. Uh, he doesn't seem to have a lot of outside help or external help. He doesn't come from a place of privilege, and therefore he had to work twice as hard to achieve what he has achieved. And therefore he is being sought by all these top law firms, and he's interviewing with them, and they're throwing uh, a ton of money and benefits at him. During the course of this movie, one thing that you learn about him is he actually has a brother. And this brother is in prison because of manslaughter. And what you also learn is he doesn't mention his brother to any of these law firms in any of these interviews. And he also hasn't visited his brother for a very long time. And I think the implication of this is he doesn't want to be associated with his uh, brother who is in prison, who is a convicted felon. That's a description of shame, right? Even though... Uh, you find out in the movie, he loves his brother, he cares for his brother. There's a sense of shame. Jesus is not like that with us. You see, even though Jesus is the much more impressive and glorious brother, and we are like the convicted felon brother, he embraces us and he says, I am not ashamed to call you brothers. Now, why isn't he ashamed to call us brothers? Well, verse 17 says it most clearly, and it says this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And uh, this is what leads to our final point, that Jesus is a priestly king. Uh, I, I said the book of Hebrews is hard, right? <laughs> Even in one verse, uh, there's a lot of hard words and so much in there. You know, what this verse is saying, uh, we'll probably go on into greater detail later on because it's going to talk about how Jesus is a great high priest for us. Um, but uh, I guess what we can say for now is this. You know, in the Old Testament, a typical priest would basically make an offering on behalf of the people, would take an animal, sacrifice it uh, for the sins of the people or something of that nature. Uh, when it says that Jesus is the faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, it's saying that Jesus does that for us. He makes a sacrifice for our sin to God on behalf of the people. But you know what sets Jesus apart from all these other priests? These other priests would bring a sacrifice uh, of an animal or grain or something of that nature. Jesus brings himself and offers himself to be a sacrifice on behalf of the people. That's the theology of the cross. You know, there's a big emphasis here on the suffering of Jesus in this passage. So for example, in verse nine, it says, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. And it doesn't say in spite of his suffering, it says because of the suffering of death. It doesn't say uh, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. Um, and you know, all this bad stuff that happened to him and his weakness and stuff like that, uh, just ignore that but he's, you know, crowned with glory and honor. It actually says because of 
his suffering and death. And then it says in verse 10 that it was fitting that God should make the founder or the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. Ah, that's, you know, I had to think about that. That, that phrase is so interesting. You know, for most people, suffering and death is not something that gives glory. Uh, something, suffering and death is not something that, you know, looks good on people. Maybe the movies uh, make death seem very dramatic and artistic and glorious as an experience, but I think in real life, death is usually not like that. My grandmother passed away about six years ago, and during the end of her life, she suffered from late-stage dementia. My dad and I, we would visit her in hospice care every week, and uh, you know, it wasn't a stage in her life where I would describe it as a really glorious stage in her life where she was crowned with glory and honor or somehow made complete. I would say it was the exact opposite experience. You know, there were days where, you know, because her mind was going, there were days where uh, she didn't know who we were. Uh, there were days where she, I guess, had recollections of when she was a young child and she would act like when she was a young child. Uh, there were days when, I don't know why, but she thought I had stolen her money and so she was accusing me of stealing her money. Uh, and, you know, when we would go, one of the reasons we would go is we would try to feed her because you never know if the, uh, the staff there, how hard they would try to get her to eat. And I would say, as my grandmother was going through the end of her life, that was not the most glorious moment that she experienced. But you see, for Jesus, it says he is crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death. For Jesus, death doesn't diminish his glory, but it actually enhances it somehow. He's made perfect through suffering. And this isn't moral perfection, but it means his role as the saving son is made more complete. Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation who obeys the Father and he's brought down to us in the incarnation so that he would be the faithful high priest who would ultimately offer himself up for us as a sacrifice once for all by dying upon a cross. And the reason why for Jesus, that is his glory, the reason why it enhances his glory is because through that loss, through that suffering, and through that death, victory is achieved. Sons of glories, glory can be brought in. You and I can follow the path out of suffering, out of death, out of misery, out of this nastiness, into a place of glory. Now, what does this mean for us? And, you know, here, let me remind you. This letter is written to believers who are discouraged, who are afraid because they are suffering, because they are being persecuted. So we should ask, how does this chapter, how would something like this encourage believers who are discouraged and afraid as a result of their suffering? I think the first thing it tells us is this. We have a God who intimately knows our suffering, who knows our pain, who knows our experiences because he was like us. He became like us. You know, you have all these other ancient religions and even modern religions, and they would say their deities would never suffer or become like us because it would diminish their glory, it would take away their power. And therefore, the, the only way to deal with suffering is you pray to this deity or you ask this deity to just completely take it away 
Or your other conclusion is this deity is not happy with me and is going to let me continue to suffer. But you see, in the Christian faith, and because of what Jesus Christ has done, there is another way to understand the suffering that we go through. This passage doesn't say that God will necessarily take it away, although he may. This passage doesn't even say that, you know, if you are suffering, that God is not pleased with you. Actually, in the gospel, in Christ, it's the exact opposite. There's a universal understanding of suffering here, and it's a suffering doesn't discriminate, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever. But what it does say is this, in your suffering, what you do have is a God who understands. What you do have is a person who has experienced the temptation that comes with suffering. And he identifies with your struggle and with your weakness. If you are somebody who has ever gone through any kind of trial or suffering or hard time, um, you know, a lot of times you don't find somebody who completely understands and that sometimes makes you feel more lonely and that's what makes suffering hard, right? But when you do find people who understand and it's a huge blessing when you do connect to somebody who really understands. Doesn't that give you a lot of comfort? Doesn't that help you get through your suffering? And that person can show genuine empathy or genuine compassion and feel a genuine connection to your pain and what you're going through? That's Jesus, friends. He is not disconnected from the pain and the hurt and the things that we feel, so we never have to feel alone as if nobody knows or nobody understands, but Jesus came down in human form and he understands. He knows. Second, and what the passage says is it tells us we don't have to be afraid of death anymore. You know, I've always said death is supposed to be scary. It's supposed to be scary. It's a really powerful force. And, you know, sometimes you hear people try to dress up death and make it less threatening. But death is a threat. I remember Steve Jobs, he once referred to death and he said, death is a great innovator. Uh, it's because of death that better and new things can sprout. I told you I saw The Lion King. Right? There's a good part of Lion King that I liked when it talks about the dynamics of kingship. Uh, the part of Lion King that I don't like is actually the way it refers to death as a circle of life, as if death is something that is just normal and natural. These are nice ways of dressing up death, but the reality is death is a powerful and scary force. It was not the way things were meant to be. Therefore, no surprise why the devil, mentioned in verse 14, would use the power of death to attack the people of God, would exploit the fear of death that we all have. According to verse 15, the fear of death subjects us to lifelong slavery. As long as you are uh, afraid of death, and that becomes your, then it becomes your master and it controls you. But the author says this, we don't have to be afraid of death. Why? Verse 14 says, Jesus defeated the power of death through his own death on the cross. And if death is defeated, there is no reason to fear death because he will bring us to glory. Uh, I heard a talk uh, a few weeks ago, I was actually shocked at some of the technology that is emerging down the pipeline. And in this talk, he was saying, you know, people who work in the tech world, they actually think that human beings, that life expectancy is going to get longer and longer. And that living beyond 100 years of age is going to be more of the norm. 
And one of the reasons why it's going to be more of the norm is they say, you know, you had these huge computers that filled up rooms, and the next stage is you have like these smaller computers, and then you have laptops that are portable, and then uh, now you have like these phone and mobile devices that are much more powerful than these supercomputers like decades ago. Uh, the next step, right, I have it on too, right? You start wearing your technology as a watch, and the next step after that, they think, we're gonna start implanting technology into our own bodies. And what that's supposed to do is, uh, I guess it's the technology is going to get better at uh, discovering diseases and discovering things that are wrong with our body and detecting sickness and illness uh, and deal with it before it actually becomes a serious problem. And so because of the promise of technology and what it's going to do, uh, everybody in the tech world, they think people will actually start to live longer and longer and longer. Now, that's one way to deal uh, with this problem of death and to deal with the fear of death. But on the other hand, Jesus is not saying, I promise to delay your death. Jesus is actually promising something more. You know, if the tech companies succeed and extend life, you know what? We will be still be subjected to the world. There will still be natural disasters. There will still be poverty, crime, war. All of that stuff will still be part of our lives. But Jesus is a king who subjects the world under his rule so that there will be no more disaster, poverty, crime, war, why? Because there will be no more sin, no more death. We don't have to fear death, not because Jesus simply delays death. We don't have to fear death because what he promises is so much better than this world. He promises to bring us to glory. The constant refrain through this letter and the constant exhortation is going to be this. If you're a believer, believers, stay the course. Stand firm. Hold fast to your confession. Even if you're suffering for it, hold fast to it. Persevere. Don't give up. How? Fix your eyes on Jesus. See Jesus. See the one who is glorious and humble at the same time. See the king who is also a brother. See the creator who is also a priest. See the one who is victorious who also suffered. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. See him. Follow him. Press on towards him. Embrace him. Yearn for him. Know how he can help us more than we can possibly imagine. And there will be times where we're going to be knocked off course. There will be times. And when that happens, fix your eyes upon Jesus and hold on to him because he will bring us to glory one day. Let's pray together.